Our sermon this morning comes from Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. And I would, of course, uh, be remiss if I did not add my um, thank you to our mothers here today. I'll tell you, I love this holiday, uh, Mother's Day. What a great and glorious opportunity it is for us products of mothers to give honor to our mothers and to our wives and to our grandmothers. I hope you take that opportunity. Unfortunately, I took the best mother, um, but uh, yours may be second best. So uh, praise the Lord for um, that great gift to all of us. This morning we are in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Hear now the word of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can now uh, study your word. We pray you would help us. I pray, Father, as I have this week, that you would give us great vision for the nations and our role in it. That you would burden this church to be your witness, to be active in your mission and your plan. And so please do that. I pray for perhaps an individual here that through your word, uh, you may call him or her uh, to take the gospel to a foreign land. Maybe someone young here this morning. Maybe someone in the middle of their career. Maybe someone retired. Father, will you please use us as you see fit for your fame and for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. Help us now as we hear from you and your word. And we do, of course, thank you as well as we in America take this day to honor our mothers. We thank you for them, our grandmothers, our wives the great blessings that they are to us. We praise you and thank you that you and your good providence and good grace has give, have given them to us. And so we thank you, Father. We pray that they would flourish and that they would love you well and they would joyfully submit to you and passionately obey you all the remaining days, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2,000 years ago, there was a 30-year-old man born to a teenage mom who was raised by a blue-collar father. This man was rural, poor. He had no formal education. He was a simple man. He had no wife, no children. He did not even have a paying job. One day, he gathered about 12 or so of those who followed him, and he told them, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You notice the confidence in this man. I will do this. You notice the ownership that he takes. It is my church. And I shall do it against whatever shall oppose me. It will be done. 
And 2,000 years later, after this 30-year-old man, unemployed, homeless, single, uneducated, rural, said, I will build my church, 2,000 years later, there are thousands of people in Loudoun County that gather together in our houses of worship simply because we love him and we worship him as our God and King and Savior and Lord. In fact, not only do thousands gather here, but there are millions today doing the same, worshiping Jesus as King and Messiah. There are millions of people today, 2,000 years later, who love him above all else, who want to serve them with, serve him with all they have, and who would gladly and willingly lay down their life for his honor and for his kingdom. I will build my church, he said, and he is doing it. He has done it. He continues to do it today. The question I have for us is how? How has this happened? How do you go from 12 people on a hillside in Jerusalem to 2,000 years later, there are hundreds of millions of people who say he's my God and he's my king? Well, I think the Bible answers, at least part of the answer here is in Acts chapter 1. You see the apostles gather together with Jesus, and they have this question for him in verse 6. They have a little conversation. They said, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, there's a reason why they're asking this question, because you notice what Jesus has been teaching them since he's been raised from the dead. Look at verse 3. It says, to them he presented himself alive after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days of speaking about the kingdom of God. And so for 40 days, he, after his resurrection, he's teaching them. Primarily what he's teaching them is about his kingdom. But that's not all. Notice verse 4. And while uh, staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Which he has said, you heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so he's teaching them two things. Namely, one, that he has a kingdom and it will be built. And namely, two, that the Spirit is about to be outpoured upon God's people. And when you put these two things together, as the prophets often did in the Old Testament, they understood that the outpouring of the Spirit of God was a sign that the kingdom was about to be culminated. For instance, in Ezekiel chapter 39, the prophet says, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel when I pour out my spirit. And so they understood, okay, he's going to pour out his spirit. The kingdom must be right around the corner. And so they say, Lord, is it now the time in which you are going to establish this kingdom? Well, you notice his answer in verse 7. He says to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. So don't worry about when it's going to happen. Right? It's a good word for us, isn't it? Stop worrying about when it's going to happen. Rather, get to work, which he says in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He says the kingdom's not going to be finished tomorrow. But, you see the first word in verse 8? But you will have power. Power to reach the end of the earth. To establish my kingdom. And so I would like to consider this verse here. Just Acts 1-8 with you this morning. In fact, it is, as many have pointed out, the key verse for the book of Acts. It is, some have called it the table of contents. 
Of course, we know from Acts chapter 1 through Acts 7, we see the church reaching Jerusalem. From chapter 8 through 11, they reach Judea and Samaria. And from chapters 12 through 28, they move out to the end of the earth. And so it helps us to understand the book of Acts. But more than that, it shows us God's plan. It shows us that, that Jesus has a plan to reach the earth, reach the ends of the earth, the kingdom. In fact, Jesus, these are the last words that Jesus spoke. He has for 2,000 years not set foot upon this earth and verbally addressed us. And I think perhaps the reason why is he wants this word here in Acts 1-8 and the other great commission passages to be reverberated in our heart and our mind and in our soul while we wait for him to come. This is our job. The church is a missionary church. And we shall be until he returns. We are to be his witness. We are to witness to Christ to the very ends of the earth. And so let's look at Acts 1-8 this morning, see where the church is supposed to go and how it's supposed to get there. And as we do, I, I want to consider how it is that Jesus is building his church today throughout this world. And in light of the, the great, incredible growth that we see in the church in this world, what can we do? What is our role as God's people as a church? I'll tell you, friends, what my longing is is that Hamilton Baptist Church would have an ever-increasing role in reaching the nations for the glory and fame of Jesus Christ, that this would be a growing priority for us, that we would have a growing and abounding willingness to go and to give and to sacrifice and to proclaim our witness to Jesus Christ, to our neighbors and to the nations, that we would not be a church known in Loudoun County for its fantastic VBS or its Bethmore Bible studies or its men's accountability groups or its college ministry, but rather we be known as a church who has a heart for the glory of God to the end of the earth, that, that we would have a heart to see his fame abound in our community and on and on and on, that more of the world would worship Jesus as king because of the saints in Hamilton Baptist Church. This is my hope. This is my dream. I trust God will work this in us. I pray that he will, not just today, but in the coming years and years. Friends, I don't dream about having a, uh, being part of a big church with all sorts of flashy, exciting programs. That's not what I think about when I lay down my head and talk to my father. I dream about being part of a group of Christians who will not rest until the fame of Jesus Christ reaches the world. That's what I long for. That's what Christ longs for, I believe. He shows us how he's going to do it. He's going to build his church through an empowered witness, through an expanding witness, and a personal witness. That's how I'd outline this verse, an empowered witness, an expanding witness, and a personal witness. First of all, consider with me that our witness is to be empowered. Verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, you have about 120 people he's telling this. We know there's 120 from verse 15. They're somewhat timid. They're kind of hiding there in Jerusalem. In fact, uh, something dramatically happens to them by the end of the book of Acts. In fact, turn to Acts 28. Look at the last couple verses in this book. Of course, we go from 120 in Jerusalem and here in Acts 28, verse 30. Speaking of the apostle Paul, it says he lived there two whole years. At his own expense. By the way, he's in prison in Rome. That's, who, that's where he is. Not in Jerusalem, but he's in prison in Rome. He lived there two years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with, what is it? All boldness and without hindrance. 
Well, what's happened? What's happened? How do we go from 120 in Jerusalem to now we're already all the way into the capital of the Roman Empire and there Christ is being proclaimed with boldness? Well, I'll tell you what happened. The Holy Spirit came upon them and he empowered them for that witness. This is what Christ has promised would happen. In fact, in the book of Luke, as, as Luke ends his great gospel, the end of that, uh, that, that book we read, and I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And they would be. And so we know in Acts 2.4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 4.8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke to the rulers of the people. 4, verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered was shaken and they were filled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Chapter 7, verse 55, Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and said, chapter 11, verse 24, Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit and a great many people were added to the Lord. Chapter 13, verse 9, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at Elimus and said, you see, you see, friends, they were empowered by God's Spirit to be his witness. I think what this means is that the Spirit helps us to fall in love with Jesus. The Spirit helps us to delight in the glory of Christ above all things that we just simply can't help but speak about the majesty of our Lord that we want to witness to Him. You know, He says, you will be my witnesses. He doesn't say you're going to go out and be a defender of Christianity or a defender of a, a system of theology, though these things are important and true. He says, you will witness to me. You will tell people about me. The Spirit will help us to do that. In fact, friends, I think we desperately need His help. I think quite often, and elders were, and I were talking about this on Thursday night, that when there's a need in our community or there's a need in the church and we identify it, our immediate reaction is to create a program. What is, what is make a program? And that program will meet that need. No, I think we have a lot of good programs. I think churches need programs. But I'll tell you what we need more than programs is power. I think some, so often we replace the program with power. Jesus does not say when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll gather together and make strategies and gather together and come up with wonderful programs on how to reach the community. He says, you will be my witnesses. And I look at the American church, and friends, I've been pastoring now since 1998, and there are more Bible studies, and there are more uh, outreach tools, and there are more seminars, and associations, and seminaries, and conferences, and organizational tools, and bigger buildings, and better projectors, and, and there, we, have, we have everything we need. And I'll tell you, the American church, I don't think has been ever been weaker. We have all the tools. We have all the programs that we have. Except we lack the power of God. Oh, friends, I think we need power. Someone handed me a, on Easter Sunday uh, an article of a newspaper. I think it was a church out in California. It sounds like a Californian church. To attract people to church on Sunday, Easter Sunday. They dressed a man up as a bunny and flew him up in a helicopter and had him parachute from 4,000 feet out of the helicopter as a way to bring people to the church. What was interesting is that the pastor of this church says, well, people are kind of getting used to the parachuting bunny, so next year we're going to strap two bunnies together and parachute them out of the helicopter. Or maybe the mayor, he's hoping. And I just don't see it in Scripture. 
I mean, what's next? What, what's next? What's next? Is that what we need? Do we need parachuting bunnies? Or do we need the power of the Holy Spirit in us? Do we need him to help us to witness? I think we've mistaken motion for the movement. I think we've confused the, the person of the Holy Spirit for programs and, and bunnies and, and whatnot. And this is how we're going to win the world. Friends, Jesus told us how we're going to do it. You're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. I think we need power. I know Stephen Carr needs power. I know our missionaries need power. I know Joshua Hands needs power. And the Zooks need power. And our friend Josh Hinton needs power. I think we need power because there's a day I'm going to to stand before the Lord and I don't want to tell them, God, I pastor the biggest church and the fanciest church and we had the best youth ministry and we had the, the best women's ministry and the best men's ministry and we did this and that and this and that. I want to stand before God and said, I was part of a church that fell in love with you. And you know what we did, God? We loved you so much that we wanted to tell people about you. And we would not be satisfied until we told our neighbors, until we told the nations. I'm going to stand before God one day. And you know what? I don't, this is me speaking personally, but I don't want to tell God, you know what I did with my life, God? You know, I, I took my kids from sports practice to dance class and, and, and then back to Boy Scouts and I ran them around for 15 years. Or I, when they were teenagers, I took them from church to church to find the most exciting youth ministry that they could fit in, that could meet their needs. You know what I did, God? I taught my children that the church does not exist for them, but it exists for you. And that we are to teach them to know you and to love you and to live their life, not in a way in which their every need is met, but they are seeking to follow Jesus Christ. I'm going to have to stand before God one day. And friends, I don't want to tell them that I worked overtime and I, and, and, and I climbed that corporate ladder so that I could retire early and chase a golf ball around or spend my summers with my feet in the sand or on top of a mountain. I'm speaking personally, but friends, when I stand before God, I want to tell him, you know what I did, God? I used my job to work as a Christian, to spread your fame. And when you were gracious enough to call, allow me to retire, I spent those years helping the lost and the hurting and the lonely. Friends, I'm going to have to stand before God one day. And I don't want to tell him I used all my money to buy a bigger house or a bigger TV or a bigger car or fancier clothes. I want to tell him I used the money which he gave me to the best of my ability. I, in fact, I sacrificed God. I went without so that your fame would abound, so that our mission force can go forth. I think we need power. I know I need power. I need the power of God to do a good work in my life. This is what they look for. You notice verse 12, it says, when they returned to Jerusalem, the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey, and when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Note verse 14. And these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They gathered together and said, we need to pray. They didn't gather together and say, let's write a book on three easy steps to discipleship or four-minute devotions for a busy life. They said, let's pray. Let's call for help. This is a big job. How are we going to reach the end of the world? We need power. And out of that room came a group of men and women who turned their city upside down. In fact, turned the world upside down. It was an empowered witness. But it's just not an empowered witness. You notice, secondly, it's an expanding witness. Verse 8 tells us, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
So so it's going to start here in Jerusalem, and then it's going to move out, and it's going to move out, and it's going to move out till it reaches the end. This is this is God's repeated refrain throughout Scripture that He will have the nation for Himself. He will have the world for Himself. He says in Luke twenty four, repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. Mark sixteen verse fifteen, go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Matthew twenty eight, go and make disciples of all nations. You see, God wants the world back. He wants the nations for himself. He wants every tongue and every tribe and every language and every people. He wants to beat back the forces of the devil and false religion and unbelief. And he wants to to beat back all the evil in this world and restore the shalom and the peace of his original creation and receive the worship of God's people. And he says, you're going to start here, but you're not going to stop here. You're going to go out and out and out until the very end is reached. Now, I understand we've heard this word over over and again. You perhaps even have this, this verse memorized even by accident. But I want you to think for a moment the weight that it must have had to them. These 120 people with no influence whatsoever or wealth to speak of there in Jerusalem says, Jesus says, you're going to reach the end of the world. You're going to go on and on and on because this is his plan. You see, the mission of God is bigger than you. It's bigger than me. The mission of God is bigger than us. God wants his glory throughout the nations. It's about him. It's always been about him. His plan is laid out for us throughout scripture. For instance, in Psalm 22, it says, All the earth, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Based upon this plan, his saints prayed in Psalm 67, let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. They gave this command, declare his glory among the nations, Psalm 96. His marvelous works amongst the people say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Mark 13, 10, the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. Because of this plan, they understood the promise of the Messiah. According to Isaiah 49, I will make you a light for all nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. We see the culmination even spoken by Christ in Matthew 24 and verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We even see a picture of it in the book of Revelation. Chapter 5, as the saints sing, by your blood, you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, people and nation. I'll tell you from the prophecy, the promise to Isaiah to the prophecies, uh, um, excuse me, from the promise to Abraham to the prophecies of Isaiah. From the Psalms to Paul, from the commandment of Christ to the vision of Revelation, we see God's plan. And it is to expand his kingdom to every corner of this world. That's what's going on. You want to know know what's newsworthy? You want to know what the news of the day is? It's not terrorism bombings in Boston. It's not conflict in Syria. It's not immigration reform or gun rights or debt ceilings. It's the fact that God, this very day and for the last 2,000 years, has been expanding his fame, his kingdom, to all peoples. Let me give you some statistics as to what's going on today. I received these from Joshua Project, which is a wonderful missiological site if you want to look on their website, but there are many others. But globally, the evangelical church is growing at a rate of 2.6%. 
far faster than the growth of Islam. Do not believe what you hear otherwise. In fact, the world's growth rate is 1.2%, so the evangelical church is growing at twice the rate of the growth of this world. Every day, 160,000 people hear the gospel for the first time. Every day, 40,000 people come to Christ. Every week, 3,500 churches are started in this world. In the year 1800, two centuries ago, 75% of the world's population had never heard the gospel. Today, that number is 28%. In the year 1900, there was one evangelical Christian for every 21 people in the world. In 1970, there was one evangelical for every 13 people in the world. In 2010, there was one evangelical for every 70 people in the world. For Christ said, I will build my church. And he is building it. And he is doing it at a rate faster than we have not seen since the first century. Of course, he's not doing it in America. He's not doing it in Europe. He's doing it in Latin America and Asia and Africa. In fact, in the year 1900, 90% of Christians lived either in America or Europe. Today, that number is 26%, 100 years later. 26% live in Europe or North America. That means 76% live in South America, the Middle East, Africa, or Asia. Think about Latin America. Did you know in 1900, 100 years ago, there were 50,000 Protestants in Latin America? In 1985, there were 30 million. Today, there are over 100 million. In Brazil, the number of evangelicals doubled from the years 1992 to year 2002. He said, I will build my church. Did you know that in the Middle East, according to one mission agency, more Muslims have come to Christ in the last 10 years than in the previous 15 centuries combined? In Iran, we knew of 500 Christians in the year 1980. Today, there are 1 million Iranian Christians living in Iran. 3,000 Iranians are coming to Christ every month. Many of them will gather together in their secret house churches, pray over a pile of New Testaments, and each one of them will take seven of those New Testaments with the goal of handing one out every day to a non-believer, knowing what will happen to them if they are caught. Or what about Afghanistan? In September 11, 2001, we knew of 17 Muslim background Afghani Christians. Today, 10 years later, there are 10,000. In Israel, Christ is being accepted more than ever. In fact, more Jews have received Christ as their Savior since 1967 than from the year 100 to 1967 combined. I will build my church, he says. In Africa, there are 20,000 new believers receiving Christ every day. The church in Africa is growing at four times the speed of the population. Sub-Sahara Africa has now become a missionary sending base to north, the Muslim north part of Africa. In southern Sudan, did you know that in 1965, 5% of that nation was Christian? And despite terrible persecution today, that number is 70%. Christ said, I will build my church. But did you know that in Asia... The church is exploding. For instance, in China, in 1950, when the nation closed to foreign missionaries, there were 3 million Chinese Christians. Today, there are somewhere between 80 and 100 million Chinese Christians, making China the most Christian nation in the world. In fact, there are more Chinese Christians than there are North American Christians. The church is exploding at exponential speed. In Korea, in 1900, there was not a single evangelical church in Korea. 100 years ago, today, there are 6,000 Christian churches in Seoul alone. One city. In Nepal, in 1980, we knew of 75 Nepali believers. Today, there are half a million. 20 years ago, there wasn't a single Christian church in Nepal. Today, we know there are at least 7,000. I will build my church. 
And he is building his church in the last century at at rates we have not seen since the first century. He is building it as he has promised. Now there is work left to do. There are, of the 17,000 people groups that we need to reach, there are 7,000 of them that have no access to the gospel. If you walked up to them and said, let me tell you about Jesus, they would think you're talking about your neighbor. They never heard the name of Jesus. These are entire cultures, 7,000 of them, about 3 billion people. 800 million of them live in absolute poverty. 70 million of them live on the brink of starvation. In fact, half their children will not live to the age of five. Reaching these people, this this remaining mission field is going to take more sacrifice than ever. Unfortunately, the United States church is going the opposite direction. In 1988, the United States sent out 65,000 foreign missionaries. 20 years later, in 2008, that number is half. 35,000 foreign missionaries leaving the United States. And it's not because we don't have people who want to go. You understand the Southern Baptist Convention, our convention has people that they're saying, we will not send you to the mission field because we don't have the money. We are the richest church in the richest land in the history of the church. This American church. There is no church richer, and there is no church that has ever been richer. And we have people saying, I will take my family, and I will go to to, uh, Central Asia to tell people about Jesus. And we are telling them, we're sorry. We just don't have enough money to do so. There is no gospel. How will they hear unless someone tells them? It is to be an expanding witness. And so I, I get excited and see what God is doing. And then I feel the great need that, that there's left. And I want to be part of it. I mean, really part of it, not just tokenly part of it. I, I pray for us. I long for our eyes to be lifted off our own needs and see what God is doing in this world. That we serve a global God who's doing a global work and says, I want you, Hamilton Baptist Church, to be involved. I want you to go. I want you to sacrifice. I want you to witness to your neighbors and the nation. My prayer is that we will get caught up in what God is doing. You see, it's just not an expanding witness, but lastly, it is a personal witness. You notice they say to Jesus in verse 6, when are you going to build your kingdom? Verse 8, he says, wait a second, you will be my witness. You will receive power. You will witness for me. We're his witness. We're to tell people that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. Didn't sin once. And he died upon a cross as a way to pay for my sin and your sin. All my sin was punished in Jesus. And that three days later he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and one day will come again and establish his eternal kingdom. We're to tell people that you cannot earn your place in heaven by your own righteous living, your own good works. But you must bow your knee to King Jesus. You must place your faith in him and trust him as your God and king and follow him where he will send you, has sent you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I tell you, based upon the authority of God's word, you shall not be rightly reconciled to God through your own goodness, no matter how good you are. You need to bow your knee to Jesus. You need to submit your life to him and he will save you. That's what we're to witness to. That's what we're to proclaim. I'm not sure they got the message for verse 9 says, And when they had, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go. Jesus says, be my witness, and he then ascends to his father, and they just stare off into heaven with their jaws hanging open, right? Is he coming back? Where did he go? What's going on? I don't know if God gets frustrated as they just continue to gaze up into heaven. He finally says, you two guys go down and help them out a little bit. Two angels show up, and and they say, what are you guys looking at? What are you gazing at? You got work to do. This is not the time of gazing. You'll, you'll gaze one day. And in fact, every once in a while, I like to gaze. I like to consider what it's going to be like and what God has blessed us with. But there's work to do. There's a mission to do. The witness is to be personal, to be part of God's worldwide plan. And, and this is what he has called us. We are called to proclaim this. And I'm afraid if all we think about in our relationship with Jesus is in the context of my forgiveness of sin and my eternal life, We're going to miss what God is doing. We're going to miss his mission. Sometimes Christianity gets boiled down to this kind of divine self-help. My marriage is broken, fix it. My job is broken, fix it. My bank account is broken, fix it. My health is broken, fix it. And all we understand, God is someone who follows around all day and blesses us. I'm going to bless this and bless this and bless this. When in reality, Christ did not say, I'm going to follow you. You are to follow me. You are to go where I tell you to go. And all we talk to God, it seems like so often, is about what he can do for us, rather than asking him to show us what we can do for his kingdom. How can we be used by him? See, God does not exist to make much of you. God God does not exist to make much of you. You exist to make much of him to your neighbors, to the nations. You are not just saved from sin. You are saved for God on to God's mission. He has given you work to do. This is your mission. Are you on mission? I think the temptation for us is to say, listen, I'm saved. I got, you know, I got a nice job. I like my family. I got a comfortable house. I got all my bills paid. I'm just going to hang out and wait for heaven. I'm just going to wait till Jesus comes back. I think this is how so many of us live. But could it be that God has actually put you in that neighborhood? Could it be that God has placed you in the place where you work and and put you in the neighborhood in which you are and, and allows you to play where you play because he wants you to open your mouth and talk to people about Jesus? Could it be that the job you have is because God has placed you there in his great sovereignty because he wants a witness there? He wants someone to proclaim his truth. And just so often, I think we are ashamed of the gospel. We're ashamed. That's we're afraid. That's why Paul said, listen, I don't want to be ashamed. God, help me not to be ashamed. He wrote to Timothy, do never, not ever be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you on his mission? I mean, when is the last time you actually said to someone who's a non-believer the gospel? When is the actually time you talked to them about Jesus? This is our witness. What a glorious job he's given us. What a glorious privilege. But it's just not our mission. It is uh, your mission. It's our church's mission. The, The temptation, I think, is for us to just focus on what we need here at Hamilton Baptist Church. What would bless us? Or or maybe not even us. How do we reach our community? Maybe our focus is just, okay, we're going to reach Loudoun County. 
says, there's enough need here. We can't think about the nation, Stephen. We got to reach here first. But friends, if you read the book of Acts, they didn't stay in Jerusalem until every, every person in Jerusalem was a believer. They planted the church in Jerusalem that moved on. They didn't stay in Antioch until every person in Antioch was a believer. Once the church was established, God sent them on. And yes, we must meet the needs here in Loudoun County. But we must not forsake the nations. We are called to reach the nations. This is our calling by God. This is his mission. We need God to help us. We need to be his witnesses. In fact, the need over there is so much greater than it is here. It is so much greater abroad. Who's going to tell them? Unless we do. Unless we help people who do. Oswald Smith used to ask the question, if you see 10 men lifting a log, nine on one end and one on the other, where do you help? And yet we keep sending all of our resources to American church to the wrong end of the log. I pray that God would help us, that God would guide us. This is my dream. Hamilton Baptist Church would be so enthralled with the global plan of God that our heart would beat for his fame that he would help us to strengthen the missionary relationships we already have, that he would cause us to enter into new ones, that he would help us to pray and plan and dream how we can reach Loudoun County and how we can even reach the world, even the unreached parts of this world. My prayer is that in the coming years, we would restructure how we spend our money. We would, we would uh, restructure how we give. That you and your own family would think, how can I sacrifice? How can I go without for the cause of Christ? My prayer is that young people in the coming years, would God would give them a vision to, to leave this land and go far away to another land that does not know Christ so that they may be the witness. My prayer is that, that perhaps some of you in the middle of your career would think well, life is not working out like I dreamed and grow restless and wonder if there's something more. And then God would do this wonderful redirection in the middle of your life to take you to some land that does not know Jesus. My prayer is that some of you who are retired would think I got 20 years left. Maybe God in his grace may give me 25, 15 years, I don't know, but I want to invest it for the kingdom. God, will you show me how I can do so? That's my prayer. That's my hope. And so we start just today. I just want to get this idea in your mind. We'll reconsider it next week. We're, as I mentioned, going to have a missions week. If you're signed up for our email every day this week, you're going to get an email asking you to pray for our missionary partners. On Wednesday night, we're going to consider God's work of missions and talk to another missionary on Wednesday night and pray for our missionaries. I hope you'll pray for our missionary partners this week. I'm going to try to make it as easy as I can for you. It's going to come right to your email inbox. Sign up on the table if you're not signed up to our email distribution list and let God do a good work. 6,000 years ago, after repeated battles with sin, God tapped a man named Abraham on the shoulder. And he said to this one man, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And for 6,000 years, God has stayed true to that plan. I believe we live in an unprecedented time. I believe we can see the finish line. I, I believe that, that we live in a time unlike any time, save the first hundred years of the Christian church. I don't know how long it's going to be, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, until every nation receives the gospel. Do you know that by the year 2038 and 25 years, that every language in this world will have a Bible translation started in their language? 
every single, I don't care if you, there's 500 people that speak that language. At the current rate, in 25 years, we will have a Bible translation project in every single language by a missionary who is with those people. I think we see the finish line. I think we live in an incredible, unprecedented time. I will build my church. You know how it ends? With you and me and people of every color and every language and every tribe and every nation standing before the king upon a new earth and a new heaven where there'll be no more pain and sorrow and sin and there we shall live in his peace forevermore. And I tell you, friends, on that day, you will not care how big your house was or how fancy your car was or how large your TV was. You will not care how you dressed or how you looked. You will care, did you get on that mission? That's what you'll care about. You won't care about anything else as you stand before the king. Did I help him establish his kingdom? Did I sacrifice? And so may this be true for Hamilton Baptist Church. May we not understand God as some genie who exists to follow us around and grant us our wishes. May we understand our God who is on a worldwide mission and that he may teach us to sacrifice and to go and to give for his glory. May God give us power. May God give us a vision. May God help us. Let us pray. Let's ask him. Father in heaven, we need your help. I think in our hearts we want more. We want to be used by you more. I think in our hearts we know that we, we, we ought not to fill our calendars with all sorts of programs. And, and they have their place and I pray, praise you for them. But Father, is there not more for us? Would you not help us to open our mouths? What a glorious privilege. Please do not help us. Please help us not to think that it's a burden. I have to talk about Jesus. Please help us understand the great honor it is that you have said to us, you, through my spirit, will build my kingdom. Perhaps even now you would lay on my brothers and sisters' hearts who it is that they need to talk to about Jesus. Please do that even now. Maybe a neighbor, a coworker, a family member. I just need to tell them about Jesus. Will you please, Holy Spirit, empower them to do so? Will you help us to fall in love with the Father and the Son? that we may find great joy in proclaiming it. Will you lead and guide us in the coming months and years and decades that we may truly be on your mission, that we may give and sacrifice and go. Will you send out missionaries from, from amongst us? Will you send people to East Asia and Central Asia and Africa, places that do not know Jesus? Will you save some even now? Perhaps there are some here this morning, Father, that they don't need to be on your mission. They, they need to receive Christ. Help them to know they are helpless without him. Help them to know that there is abounding and eternal joy with him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.